The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. From Nashville, Tennessee, and broadcasting throughout the world, you have now crossed over to the far side. And on today's edition, we will explore the human consciousness. And it starts and ends with the following question. Does our consciousness, mind, soul, or spirit, end with the death of our body? Joining us from Italy, our guest is Irvin Laszlo. And Irvin is an esteemed philosopher of science. Without further ado, Irvin, welcome to the far side. Okay, Bob, thank you. It's good to be with you. It's great to have you here with us. Irvin, your latest book, The Immortal Mind, Science and the Continuity of Consciousness Beyond the Brain, was a fascinating read. I would like for you to give us an overview of who you are and what led you into researching the outskirts of science, including the survival of consciousness beyond the brain. Well, Bob, you know, I am supposed to be a philosopher, but I'm really a kind of philosopher who is interested not in the technical parts, but in interested in knowing something about what we can believe is reality, is the world, including ourselves. And so I look at things that I really don't really know. I'm interested in things that I don't know. And if it's something that is not very well known or not really known in today's world, then I'm really interested in it. And this idea of what is the nature of reality is one thing that we are beginning to get a good grasp on. But the idea of what is consciousness and whether consciousness persists within the brain or also beyond the brain, that is something that is now coming up more and more in, in serious research and also in the public eye everywhere. So that's really something that's been fascinating me for some time. So I would say that I've spent quite a few years developing what is known as a paradigm, a new paradigm. I call it the Akashic paradigm, and I can explain that in a moment. And then I've written something like a dozen books on that. And before that, I worked in system theory and in evolution theory. And now I'm, I would say that I'm most in, more interested, more interested than anything in the nature of consciousness and whether consciousness is limited to our brain or whether it's a wider, deeper phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the Akasha paradigm. What is that? Well, it is a reality that is beyond space and time. Now, this sounds like very esoteric stuff, but actually in the new sciences, this is something that is being rediscovered. I say rediscovered because it has been known all along. It has been known for, for thousands of years that what we perceive, that world that we perceive is not the ultimate reality. It's a projection or an a, a appearance, a manifestation of a deeper reality. 
this is very much there in Buddhism, you know, in, 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 in the Hindu philosophy, in the Chinese philosophy. It is there in the Western spiritual uh, esoteric tradition. And now it's coming into science as well. This has been introduced by the famous physicist David Bohm uh, several decades ago. And now more and more evidence is forthcoming that there is indeed a, a deeper reality beyond the space and time that we perceive and that in which we live. So this deeper reality has been anticipated uh, in, in the intellectual tradition. It has anticip been anticipated almost 5,000 years ago by the Hindi uh, rishis, the sages, who talked about four dimensions of the world, uh, air, uh, fire, water, uh, earth. And, but beyond that, they said, and more fundamental than all of those, is a fifth dimension or a fifth uh, level, if you like. And this fifth level they call the Akasha. So the, in the tradition, in the popular tradition at least, what the Akasha has been known for is the Akashic record. Because the rishis, the sages said that this Akasha dimension conserves everything that happens in the world in other real, four, four other dimensions. So if everything is conserved, then we should be able to somehow get access to it, read out what happens. And so when people are coming across this idea of an Akashic record, or they get to information that they can themselves uh, retrieve uh, from a deeper level, it seems, of the world, and then they talk about the Akashic uh, cosmos, the Akashic dimension. So I call this deep dimension, which is being rediscovered as the unified field, as the zero-point field, as a cosmic plenum, because it's much more than a vacuum, it's a plenum. All this I know I call the Akasha dimension. And I talk about the new paradigm, which is based on the idea that the world is not limited to what we perceive with our senses, but there's a deeper reality. And I call this the Akasha dimension or the Akasha paradigm. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that this Akasha paradigm, this Akasha dimension, and, and maybe even the world, that everything is a holographic realm of consciousness? Yes. That is, it, I'm not saying this only myself. <laughs> the top-level physicists are talking about what they call the Akasha theory of the universe, the Akashic theory, the Akashic hologram theory. The idea being that what we perceive as three-dimensional things, reality in space and time, in these three dimensions, uh, then these are actually projections of a, of a set of codes, which is on a lesser dimension and two-dimensional codes on the periphery of space and time. Uh, if these codes are actually uh, creating a three-dimensional image, then the size of the image should correspond to the possibility of these codes. These are getting into the technicalities, but what the physicists are saying, that we know roughly, the, uh, seems strange enough, but it's true, in physics we can calculate the area of space-time. The area of space-time is the area that has been covered by light since the Big Bang, 15.8 billion years ago. You know how fast light is traveling, and if you consider from a given point, the area that's been covered in all this time is the area of space-time. <clears throat> now, if uh, the area of space-time would be papered over, as it were, as they would be covered entirely this area by two-dimensional codes, 
these codes would have to be the smallest possible dimension, which is the so-called Planck dimension. At that dimension, if you have these codes, then the, the, what, the, what appears inside space and time in the volume, we have a specific size. It's much larger than this Planck, Planck dimension, which is ultra small, but a very specific dimension. Now, it turned out that the smallest perceivable fluctuations inside the space-time, in, in space itself, are of precisely of that dimension that they would have to be if these two-dimensional codes were real, if they were projections of two-dimensional codes. So this is just a technical detail, but this is to say that it is now a very seriously entertained hypothesis or theory. Hmm. That, that what, we, what we are ourselves and what we know as our world are projections of two-dimensional codes which are either at the periphery of space-time or anyway outside of space-time. And so that, that for, uh, they, there is a deeper reality and this deeper reality is a holographic reality. It's a kind of a field, an information field. And just to get right to the point, I call it, in, in, in my recent works, I call it the Akashic Holo field. Interesting. To dumb it down for our audience, are we, as in human beings, a program, a, a code of program, or maybe a robot, where our consciousness is tapped into a specific portion of this Akasha dimension. I don't think we have to be a robot for that. Uh, what it means, on the contrary, I would think, it means that our consciousness, which appears for us, is not simply something that is produced or programmed by our brain, by, by, the, by the behavior of these neurons, of the cells of, in the brain, that our consciousness actually is linked to a higher level of our deeper reality, you might say, to this holo field, which is the basic reality of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And so what appears to us, the consciousness is a part of that. We are whole, our consciousness is a holographic projection of the cosmic consciousness. To put it on everyday terms, or let's say spiritual terms, we are all manifestations of a divine mind. It really comes to the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking back years ago, people used to freeze themselves in something called cryogenics. Yes. And just recently, I think it was 2013, a lady out in the United Kingdom, she had cancer. She had her head removed from her body and frozen. And I, I think it was a few weeks ago where I read that the new concept for today is that by 2045, we will be able to digitize our consciousness. As a philosopher, what are your thoughts on the success rate of actually one day digitizing the human consciousness? If human consciousness is a product of our brain, then you can do this. Because our brain is a finite entity, yes, in, in space and time, and it can produce just so many bits of information. And this total number of information that's produced by our brain can be digitized. But it's only if, if. If, however, as you just said, or as I just said, the consciousness is actually a manifestation of, of a broader reality, then you have a problem. Then you would have to digitize cosmic consciousness or the mind of God, if you like. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's possible. There's no way to tap into the Akasha dimension. We tap into it, but we can't, it's not a finite thing that we can put into okay. numbers, you know. It's, it's, it's an infinite, the universe is a great thought, if you like, and this has been said by famous astrophysicists, like James Jeans, for example. 
the universe is more like a great thought than like a great rock, he said. And so if the universe, the cosmos, is really based on a deeper level of consciousness, then it's something that we can live, we can experience, but we can't capture in a limited number of digits. Mm -hmm. Thinking about this, let's go into the cases of near-death experience. What, if you are able to answer this, what is the earliest known account of a near-death experience? Gosh, I mean, it's probably, it goes back to the Greeks, you know. To the, the Greeks. Egyptians. Yeah, I mean, they talked about, uh, you know, being able to visit Hades, you know, uh, and, and, and the river Thix over, Thix over there, and, uh, and some people can come back. But most of them, of course, cross over to the other side. But uh, Egyptians talked also about visiting the, the realms beyond the, beyond the everyday world. So if you talk about these experiences, the experiences have been there, but it has, they have been classed in esoteric mysticism. Uh, so the as far as recorded experiences, that goes a couple of decades, really, when clinical uh, uh, medical doctors have started keeping records, as have have interviewed patients after they have a period of, of brain death, which occurs and which can actually occur up to 20 minutes, it seems now, and the patients can still come back. And then they have, they should not supposed, they're not supposed to have experiences, conscious experiences at that point. But it turns out that many patients actually, in some records, 25% of the cases, people come back with something like a conscious experience during the very time that the brain was so-called flatlined, and the electroencephalograph was a single line instead of a curve. You know, mm -hmm. so that is now uh, recorded, and some people claim, estimate actually, that there are as many as six million cases that have been studied uh, or, or clinically recorded <coughs> of this kind of near-death experience, of conscious experience during the time that the brain was flat. Mm. I recently read a piece where I think it was, I forgot exactly what the scientist's name was, but he came out and said that near-death experiences, in his opinion, are triggered by electrical surges in a dying brain. But that just, as you just spoke about, that just doesn't explain a majority of near-death near experience cases, does it? Well, I mean, they're always the detractors. They're always, they're known as the skeptics. And of course, these arguments has been uh, has been examined very seriously, sure. And uh, then, if if this was the case, you know, you would not have veridical experience. You would not have precise experience during the time that somebody was brain dead, and this experience would not be exactly what this person would have seen and heard or perceived had he or she been uh, had a normal brain function. So, veridical experience is not explained by the thing. Besides. Well, now we know very well that there are the brain functions do not just simply peter out. There are very, very great fluctuations. There's, for example, an enormous energy surge in, in the brain just before uh, physical death, before the death becomes irreversible. Yeah. And, and so the, uh, the serious uh, evidence uh, for this is, goes way beyond the skeptical argument that this is just something that the dying brain produces. First of all, this brain doesn't, hasn't even died in most cases, it comes back. It starts functioning normally. 
and there are experiences that uh, show that the ex it takes place exactly during the time that was brain was was completely dead. Just one example: there was a woman called Patricia uh, uh, Pamela Pamela Reynolds. She had a very very serious operation, and uh, it involved what is known as a standstill. That means that they had to empty her brain because had a brain tumor, very serious one, had to empty it of all blood has to be anesthetized, the brain had to be completely flatlined and was flat for one hour. There was no possibility for the brain to receive anything during that time. Not that when it's anesthetized, it was emptied of blood, it was, it was completely immobilized. There was no possibility of any, anything occurring in that brain. And during that time, during that one hour, Pamela had experiences that she dictated afterwards and the, the doctors confirmed that what she heard about the operation, even to the extent of the sound of the of the of the bone saw that they opened her skull. Oh, I don't want to go into gory details, but I mean everything that she she, she reported afterwards was actually a veridical experience, and her brain could not have perceived or, or functioned during that time at all. Mm -hmm. And there are many cases like this. This is just one of the most striking ones. Wow! In your knowledge, has there ever been a case of a near-death experience? where this individual in their spiritual form appeared to either doctors or loved ones, or perhaps communicated with them while they were in a near-death experience? Well, this, is, this would be very, something very special. I am not aware of that. Uh, there are many cases when, where individuals uh, who have died have appeared to living people. These are apparitions. But of the of the would have been the kind where this individual had had on a temporary lapse, temporary temporarily dead, so to speak, and come back, possibly. But I'm I'm not aware of it. Okay. What I'm aware of is that there are many many cases of these apparitions, and there are many many contacts and mediums, science mediums can come up with contents which are also quite very difficult have been examined very much in detail. I can even give you an example of one that is very interesting. If you like, but sure. um, uh, okay, uh, let, let, let me give you that because very often people say that mediums are, are making up the, uh, what, they, what they report on, you know, or sometimes they even say that okay, maybe they pick it up with some kind of ESP, extrasensory perception from other people. But then uh, there are a number of cases where the mediums could not have picked up anything like this, and I've looked in my book at, at dozens of them. But let me just tell you one, which is, to me, is fascinating. There was an Englishman uh, a couple of decades ago who was a chess fan, was an amateur chess player. And he was very curious to see how, if it's possible, for a, a chess grandmaster to play a game who's no longer alive. So he asked a, a famous medium to look around in this other realm I would call the Akashic Holo field, and ask if there's anybody who would be willing to play a game, a chess game, anybody who is no longer alive. And one, after, after a short while, one grandmaster, one person reported, happened to be uh, interesting particularly because I'm of Hungarian origin, and this was a Hungarian grandmaster from the year 1900, was the third ranking grandmaster in the chess world. And this game was now in the, in the, in the 20th century, but in, in the late 1900s. And that time, 
there was a, a living grandmaster called Viktor Korchnoi, of Russian origin, uh, who said, okay, I'm willing to play. What did they do? Now, this medium, and first of all, they announced, they introduced themselves, or the one was the dead person, the other one's living. They, both of them are grandmasters. Both of them happened to be the third writing grandmasters in the world. Only one of them was, was uh, almost 100 years after the other one. So they started playing. And this medium picked up the moves as the chess, chess players themselves know, you know, go from B2 to, to E5 or whatever. You know, they give these, these moves in this kind of format that chess players know. And the living grandmaster has responded. And they played for, God knows, I have to look up now the exact data, but it, I think the seven years altogether. It was a very, very long game because the living grandmaster was, had other things to do and it was traveling and was sick in between and so on. They played, and after, after about, I think, move 41, and they checked every move. Every move was checked by, by uh, chess experts, and it turned out that the dead grandmaster uh, gave up. And it turned out that when they analyzed the game, that he would have inevitably faced check, chess mate, uh, checkmate uh, five moves later by the living grandmaster. So and he, this dead grandmaster, his name was Geza Marozzi, uh, he exhibited a style of play for which he was known at the time. And uh, nobody uh, today, as far as people know, had known this style of play particularly, and it was so typical of him, how he played. And the whole game was played on a dead master, on, on a grandmaster, chess grandmaster level. So now I ask you, how could this medium, who by the way claimed, although you can believe it or not, but he claimed that he didn't know any chess. It was completely new to him. He didn't know what he's saying when he was giving these moves. How could he have known precisely this, this level of play of a grandmaster, particularly of that one dead chess master, grandmaster's game, you know? Yet they did that, and every move has been analyzed and recorded, and there it is. So as I said, this is one among several dozen examples that I quote in my book, which is particularly fascinating because it just cannot be explained by any normal means. How would that medium come up with this uh, information? How to give these, these, these moves? But he did. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, would it be possible for, say, theoretical scientists, physicists, to do the same with someone such as Albert Einstein and gain his insight on information to possibly work together to unify his field? Well, yes. Uh, what, what is involved? I mean, let me tell you the basic theory that I've developed is that there is this hollow field, which is not all that new idea because David Bohm, a great physicist, came up with the idea several decades ago. But now we have more and more evidence that there is this, this basic field. And this basic field records, records everything that has taken place, everything that was anybody's mind. So it's conceivable. And, and theoretically, uh, it should be possible that the, all, these, all the consciousness of Albert Einstein during his lifetime is recorded. It's part of the Akashic field. Mm -hmm. so the issue then is, how do you access this? The access is, is sort of, you have to find that particularly bit of a set of information which constitutes, represents the thinking of Albert Einstein. 
And this is like going to the internet, only this is even much, <laughs> enormous lot of dimensions, vast, vast and greater than the internet. And going to the internet and, and being able to pick up besides the information. You need to have very specific codes for that. Okay? So the, 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 it's not impossible, but it just means that you have to have that information so you can retrieve from this whole of field the information that you're looking for. In this case, the thinking of Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. Would it be possible for us to design a computerized version of a transmitter receiver, kind of like what mediums have internally that can tap into this dimensional field so we can transmit information and receive information from it? Well, there are, there are examples whereby perfectly normal electronic instruments have picked up information from this deep field, and this is known as, as, as electronic information phenomena. ICV, transcommunication, electronic information transcommunication. And very often, uh, ordinary TV sets, uh, radios, even even, uh, tape recorders, when you play them back, they contain messages that they have sounds, sometimes images, uh, which shows this. This is another field of research, a very vastly, very vast field. Thousands of people are, are investigating it. So it's possible. But how exactly to program a machine uh, to pick up this kind of information specifically so that to pick it up, that's something that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. What seems to happen is that on the other side, from the other side, that the communicator side, they have somehow access to this kind of this uh, transmission. I myself have witnessed, I've been myself involved and just been taken to a, to a famous medium, and I've witnessed actually communication uh, from the other side, through uh, an old-fashioned radio, which just came up with sounds, came up with voices, during the time that physicists and, and, and engineers actually checked the radio, and the radio uh, was not operating. You know? hmm. and through, through it, through it came this special sound, uh, which responded to me and gave me answers. And this uh, medium was an old Italian who knew, didn't know anything about this, this local Italian, and yet these people started talking to me in Hungarian. And, and because the medium said, talk to them in Hungarian. And I said, who are you? I said, we are here on the other side. And he said, what languages do you know? He said, we know all languages. You know? And this conversation went on for a little while. And nobody in the room had, had the foggiest idea of what you are talking about because nobody knew, knew Hungarian. So this sort of thing, this instrumental transcommunication, ITC, is actually something that is thousands and thousands of cases. It's, it's been checked, it's been recorded, uh, and, and, and verified. It's a big literature on it as well. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with, I think it was called the Spiricom? Yes, yes, I heard about that, yes. Well, uh, this is one of many cases. What they did uh, earlier, actually they tuned the radio or the, uh, the television set to the in-between area, the white nose noise areas. So when they're actually not receiving anything on the short wave, particularly, or ultra-short wave, uh, then you're getting these, these static sounds, this white noise. And uh, there have been many cases, uh, experimentally shown, repeatable, where this, when you play back, record this, and when you play it back, all of a sudden there are voices appearing in it, and some of the voices are identifiable, and sometimes there are conversations taking place with them. So this is one way that there's apparently what they used to call spirit communication, 
communication seems to take place. It's, for me, it's just communication with the consciousness, this, this broader, deeper consciousness of a person whose, whose body is no longer involved in that because the consciousness persists. I would just say consciousness persists uh, beyond the body the same way that a radio program or television program persists even when you turn off the radio set or the TV set. You don't receive it anymore. But it doesn't mean that the program wouldn't exist. So the same way, if consciousness is actually a deeper cosmic phenomenon, then it exists even when the receiver, that the brain, is not operative. Mm-hmm. This entire discussion that we're focusing on now, it reminds me of a theory that I've had. I know it's a theory other people have had about the physical plane on our planet, the magnetic, if I can speak, atmosphere, the rocks, etc., that it can act as a recorder and a player of physical events of the past. Is this something like a record, or would you say it's more like tapping into, again, the Akasha field? If there is this deeper level, which I'm convinced that there is, uh, we have all the evidence for it, then it's a question of capturing it. And Mm -hmm. we have a fantastic instrument in our head, it's called the brain, which is more sophisticated than anything we could create artificially. And this brain is able to capture it, um, but we have to be able to not ignore this. We have to be able to receive this and transfer it to our consciousness. And that's why it's known as you sometimes have to get into a slightly altered state of consciousness where you don't filter out this information. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's our best receiver is actually our own brain, our brain and nervous system. And probably even the neurons, uh, the subneuronal assemblies, and nowadays it's new physics theories, found that they're up to the nanometer, extremely small, you know, ultra-small level. There are networks of, of uh, subcellular units in the brain which resonate with what we known as quantum uh, fluctuations, which are all around us in the cosmos. So we are a very good receiver. We are a living organism is a fantastic receiver of information. And it's far, far beyond the, the range of the eyes and the ears. Mm-hmm. Have you ever experienced either a uh, near-death experience yourself, or have you experienced a non-incarnate individual appearing to you? Well, I said I had this experience that I mentioned uh, with, 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 with a medium that to me it was, I described it in another book very much in detail, but uh, this, this was thoroughly convincing. I have, I didn't have a near-death experience, luckily, uh, so, so far I did not have kind of a physical problem that was pushing me to that, that point, but um, uh, I, I have regularly have what you might call intuitions, if you like. But they are intuitions of the kind that afterwards I can, I, can, I can consider, I can try to develop and work out, and then I can subject it to test to see if it meshes with what we know about the world and, uh, and about, about experience. And most of my works, especially in the last few years, are written like that. I mean, if you want to put it in a somewhat primitive, simplistic way, you would say, okay, so I'm, I'm, being, uh, chan- I'm channeling some high information. I don't want to use such big words, but I, as I go along, uh, as I work on a theory, I have an intuition of which way to develop that. And uh, it, uh, it doesn't always work out, 
but without it, I could I would not be able to uh, to create those uh, concepts, which subsequently can be subjected to analysis and to research, and sub- subsequently can be shown to work out. So I, I I'm I'm constantly being, to put it in a some again in some simplistic way, somewhat guided in 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 my theoretical explorations. Mm-hmm. It's just to say, call it inspiration, but call it you know there are various names that you can call this. But there is, I, I do believe that it's not just pa- just by chance that I'm, I'm coming across phenomena and try- developing theories for it. It's not just me doing it. I'm, I have also a higher higher uh, a- a- access to something higher, to higher guidance. Mm-hmm. Through my 39 years that I've been alive here, I have encountered numerous experiences myself, more times than I have fingers to count with. The last one that I do remember, this was with a spiritual entity, if you will. And back in 2008, my father had, I guess you could say he died momentarily. His kidneys had failed on him. He got life lighted to the hospital. We went to visit him off and on. But one day, it appeared something actually followed us home from the hospital. My mother called me into the living room and she pointed to the ceiling fan. And I didn't think anything of it. I mean, the ceiling fan goes around. The switch is turned on. Thing is, that switch was not turned on. And I specifically said, I think someone followed this here from the hospital. And it stopped. Mm-hmm. It just stopped. And th- that was when mom asked, did you follow us here from the hospital? It started right back up. It was communicating with us. Either that or there was a draft inside. I don't know. Well, a skeptical argument. You always try to find an explanation that's closer down. But what they're talking about is psychokinesis, you know, the actual motion, actual movement of things uh, from an anomalous, from a non-ordinary source. So sometimes it has been shown that uh, consciousness on, on some level is able to produce some physical manifestations. Uh, this uh, We don't understand the physics of that. Mm-hmm. It's uh, many, many cases are reported like this. Um, uh, to me, it's, it's one of the fascinating cases, but since it's far beyond what we understand today, I have not been dealing with them specifically, except for noting that this sort of thing does happen. Do you think there will ever be a time where this belief is going to be mainstream, that scientists, doctors professors, everybody is going to begin to understand that it is real and not just imaginary. Well, I'm trying to contribute to that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of the goals I have because I think it's very important to get to, to get a, a solid foundation for this, which is uh, bringing it into the ambit of science. I should add that I'm working currently on a, on a book which is called Beyond Space Time, and its subtitle is Consciousness in the Cosmos. And uh, I, I deal with a lot of this kind of phenomena and trying to find a science, science-based understanding of it. And uh, the introduction has been written by Deepak Chopra, and he is talking a great deal about the need for understanding this phenomena and how we are now getting closer to that because we realize that everything we do has a deeper dimension. It's not uh, just on the surface of things. 
we have a dealing with an old paradigm. We saw that nothing exists other than matter moving about in space. The problem is now they find out in new physics there is no such thing as matter. Because when you go down and examine the, the atoms and the, and the particles and the quarks and the quanta, they are swirls of energy. And they are not nothing you can call solid matter. And there's no such thing as space, is there? Because space is not empty. Space is, is a continuum. As a tremendous amount of levels of, um, of virtual particles are fluctuating in, in, in space. So the, the universe is not such a simplistic place as we used to think it is. And as this kind of new concept of, of the nature of reality is coming, is hitting home, is coming into people, people realize that their intuitions, their experiences, like you yourself described some of your experiences, that these experiences have a foundation. They are not impossible. They are part of the reality. Only we have ignored them because we believe that they couldn't happen. They were not there. And if you strongly believe that something can't be, can't be true, that you actually don't perceive it. That has been also tested many times. You, know? you don't see things that you believe can't, can't exist. You know? So this, I think this recognition that we are living in a, I could almost say a living universe, in a conscious universe, that our consciousness is a cosmic consciousness, this is coming home more and more. Let me just add uh, the one very famous sentence that has been quoted now more and more. You know, the, the, the great physicist Erwin Schrödinger. Well, Schrödinger said in one of his last writings that there is no such thing as consciousness in the plural. He said, there's only one consciousness in the world. An increasing number of people are coming up with this idea that we're all projections of that one consciousness. Interesting. So I... I also talk about the in, in my new book in this Beyond Space Time and as the whole consciousness, you know, which is uh, really it's the deeper level of the universe, it's the akasha level. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking about that if you do not perceive it, you don't believe that it's real. That that can go back into the old days when people believed the Earth was flat, and they felt that if you sailed off into the ocean, you were going to fall off the world, and yes. that was disproven. If you believe, if you have to see, see something to believe in it, that means that your world is limited to your sensory perceptions, immediate sensory perceptions. And then you have to throw out 99.9% .9 of modern physics. Because most of what physics deals with, you don't perceive with your senses. It's mm -hmm. something that can be tested against sense perceptions, but it's not something that you can directly perceive. Mm -hmm. In your work, I know this does not have to do with the immortal mind, but... In your vast amount of work that you've done over the years, have you looked into the possibility of extraterrestrial or intraterrestrial life? Well, extraterrestrial life is uh, logically a tremendous possibility, probability. It would be extremely unusual and incredible sophistry to believe that we are only form of conscious life in the universe. Now we know roughly the amount of stars and planets, and even planets, uh, statistics about planets that will be capable of supporting life. We know the amount of information that is in the universe. So to believe that there is no other conscious life but ourselves is, is, is a kind of an unbelievable, narrow-minded statement. Mm -hmm. Again, it goes back down to what you perceive is real, and if you don't perceive it, it's not real. It goes the other way, you know, it goes the opposite way as well. If you don't believe it, you don't perceive it. Mm -hmm. 
to do. You know, when you show uh, uh, traditional people who have been shot away from civilization, show them a, a photograph, they don't see a, a picture in it. You know, they, they see something, a flat thing that you are holding in your hand. They don't see uh, an image in it. If, the, if you look up at the sky, there's a plane happens to be flying overhead, which you've never seen before. They don't see it. They don't mm. see it. It's a plane. There's something, something, perhaps strange. We don't just see things. We recognize things that we already have seen, that we already know, and that we believe is true. It's the greatest stumbling block always to acquiring new knowledge. The new knowledge is something that you have not seen before. And if, if you've already seen and know it before, then it's not new knowledge. So new knowledge has to be built into what you already know. If you're convinced in a dogmatic fashion that uh, this thing that you're talking about could not happen, you can't build it in, and for you it doesn't exist. And even to the extent where the sense perception is, is uh, obeying this, you won't actually perceive those things. Mm -hmm. Where does new knowledge come from? At, at some point in our life, Math did not exist. Science did not exist. It was somehow created or given to us. Was this, again, from the Akasha field? And if so, where, where did that come from to begin with before we was consciously aware to create it? Well, first of all, the Akashic, Akashic dimension or Akashic field is not necessarily uh, was a tabula rasa, not necessarily was an empty slate when the universe was born. The perfectly good mainstream theorists today, which talk about a fluctuating universe, a universe which is periodically explodes, so to speak, and then collapses, and then comes back again, and information from one universe to another could very well be conserved. I've developed the theory in quite some detail myself, and there's good experimental uh, evidence for it, too. So uh, what, what we, we have in the field around us is need not even uh, just stem from the beginning of our universe. It could be a much deeper one. But let's say that it's just our, our universe, even the beginnings of life. Think of this enormous amount of experience that has been in this biosphere. And then how many biospheres are likely to be in this galaxy? How many galaxies are, are, are there likely to be? So the, if there is a holographic field which acts like the kind of holographic field that we know, which records and conserves the information that's entered into it, then it's like a super, super cloud computing system, you know, like, like, like one of these you know, cloud systems. Uh, it, it picks up everything and it keeps everything. So if there is that, then obviously, occasionally, when we are working on something and we have, something is puzzling us, it's like I speak from my own experience also, you get ins insights, you get intuitions, which cannot simply be explained purely by, by, uh, by, uh, by chance, by cause, casually. I mean, it's a causal, not casual. It's something is actually uh, there that is helped you have you pick up something more than you have thought before. But even aside from that, I think though that's very true, but even aside from that, it's it's clear that you have an enormous lot of possibility of permutations, combinations of existing items of knowledge. And those combinations can bring you basically new information, new fields. Every bit of information that you have on your computer is based on sequences of bits, which is zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. And that all produces the info, that enormous information. And we could not be talking like this over the internet 
if it wasn't be that the zeros and one have been organized in a way that permits the uh, electronic system to reproduce our, our, our voices and carry transmit it over the airwaves, you know. So uh, many new, new ideas can be developed on the basis of old ideas, but I, I am personally, I'm reluctant to say dogmatically that there is nothing new can really happen because it's only the old ideas being rehashed somehow, recombined. I think there is really, there is much more knowledge coming into the world than we could have arrived at ourselves. We are being constantly inspired, if you like. That's, of course, one of the big words. But we, are, we, are, we have access to information that is beyond our, 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 our ordinary uh, material kind of sensory world. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of, I forgot the exact term, but it's a library of knowledge for all things that have been that will be, that may never have been, but it, it's a collection of knowledge of everything. Actually, it's known as the Akashic Chronicles. Oh, okay. Very, very often used the Akashic Chronicles. You know, the Chronicles is everything that records, records everything that has been there. Everything that ever has happened is, 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 is there. It's in this whole field, and it's retrievable. It's like, just like you have a giant computer, which picks up everything that has been entered by anywhere, it enters into this cloud computing system, mm -hmm. and if you have the right codes, you can pick it out again. It, 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 you can retrieve it. Yes. The hologram is an incredible, powerful tool for recording things. It's been calculated also that if you take the number of letters that are in the, in the, in, in the books, in all the books, in the Library of Congress, and it's been computed what kind of a hologra holographic uh, instrument would you need, and it turns out that you need a multiplex hologram about the size of a cube of sugar to conserve all every letter in every volume in the Library of Congress. And that has been a few years ago. I think by now it's probably you need a quantum size chip at <laughs> the present time. Fascinating. This, this leads me to reincarnation, the cycle through which the human spirit or the consciousness is recycled. Okay. When you were researching for the immortal mind, were there any cases that stood out the most to you when it came to proof of reincarnation? Well, I look at evidence. I look at, at statistics. I look at surveys that have been done, you know. And uh, uh, individual cases uh, are, are, are sometimes can be striking. But what is striking is the, uh, is the occurrence of this in large numbers. There's one bit of evidence that I think is extremely interesting, and that would be very difficult to falsify. And that's the recollection of very small children. When children uh, first began to talk, to verbalize things, they are just under the age of three. And for the next couple of years, if they are in a surroundings where people don't just tell them shut up and don't say anything stupid, uh, then they can freely talk and free talk about what they have experienced. And often their experience is a very little experience of the kind which indicate that they have witnessed, they have seen what was happening to them before they were born. And this is kind of a pre-birth experiences. So this is indirectly, or even directly if you like, evidence for reincarnation. Because what these children come up with and there have been large surveys being done of this. Um, 
they come up with information about how they met their parents, sometimes how they could even choose their parents. And then they have, of course, this, this, this standard kind of reincarnation experiences of they recognizing uh, not themselves in the current uh, form, but recognizing as being somebody else and knowing that uh, uh, that whole uh, environment of the other person, or the so-called foreign personality, as they call it, and 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 uh, which usually lives in the same environment, and sometimes they can go and and discover everything in the other place where they used to live, and they recognize their parents over there, and and uh, so. But there are many thousands of cases like this. That's the standard reincarnation phenomena. But what interests me particularly these pre-births from uh, memories of children, whom they record. Uh, and when they when they ask them and they just freely come up when they are in a little bit of a of a relaxed state of mind, you know, taking a warm bath before going to sleep, and they start talking about the experiences. And if you listen to them, I think you can do that with any child anywhere in the world. Um, they come up sometimes with what seems to be fantasies. But if you took it ser- serious and recorded, it turns out that some of those fantasies are things that the parents can confirm that happened to them the places that they have been before the child was born, and events that happened to them. You know, this, uh, this to me is a particularly interesting area. A lot of research has been done, partly by, by uh, Stevenson, who was a famous, uh, died a few years ago, a, a sociologist at the University of Virginia, and his uh, Jim Tucker, who was a successor. And a lot of re- uh, research like this has been done in Japan also. Uh, it's it's uh, it's worldwide, but it's highly concentrated though uh, in in some parts of Asia, where there is a belief in reincarnation such that the children are not being shut down or shut up uh, when they start coming with these uh, so-called memories. They actually kind of what is nowadays known as intermission memories. That's the term that this, the the researchers use: intermission between lives. Mm-hmm. The recollection of these children to remember their past lives the further along we go as far as the years 2013 2014 does it seem like more in more children are remembering their past lives now than in the past well the phenomena is being recognized more i don't know if it actually means that they're more children remembering but it's it's again a question but i said before if you don't believe it it doesn't happen mm-hmm. you don't see it now if if there is no reason why a child should not believe that he, he or she has lived before you know then he or she will come up more easily with with memories and of course you can't say that they are just fantasies but if if you if you record it and you analyze it and you confront it with evidence very often these are not things that could have been just invented because they are they are they check they, they check with what actually has taken place. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what is the general purpose of reincarnation? Learning. Learning. That I can, I can say this is the conclusion that I have reached now more and more. Through the sequence of, uh, of bardos, you know, by the way, bardo is not something that happens between, only between death and birth. It's also between, between birth and death. Yes, all the intervals of existence are called bardos by the, by the Hindu sages. But anyway, regardless of that, uh, what happens on to these different phases of existence is always a, 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 seri- a series of experiences 
which give you the chance to learn. By learning, I mean evolving your consciousness, becoming more aware of who you are, what the world is. One of the important facets of this uh, learning is to recognize that we, to some extent, create our environment. We create our world. But not in that kind of a primitive way that we actually make up the trees and whatnot. But the kind of world that we have around that have multiple possibilities. And the, whether it's a, a, a loving world depends whether we are loving ourselves, whether we, have whether we are empathetic ourselves, how we relate to others around us. I think the more evolved consciousness is a one that is more feel having has the sense of oneness. We talked about a moment ago about this everything and coming up with the idea of there is but one mind. This notion of there is just we are just one in a in a very basic cosmic sense. We are all manifestations of a single basic consciousness. And if we can learn to recognize that, I think they are becoming more evolved. And that is, if you like, the purpose. And that I seem to, I'm thinking about it in this, I'm working on this book now about talking about the purpose of, of, of existence and the cycle of existence. It seems to me that evolving our consciousness so we become, recognize each other, recognize ourselves in the cosmos, recognize we are part of this higher consciousness. It's an age-old idea in a spiritual sense. And now I think the, the evidence that we find points in this direction that we, we through this experience, this near-death experience, very clearly a learning experience, what is known, so channeled after this experience is, you know, coming forth with people who have described their own physical death and what is happening afterwards. And there's a lot of literature on that too. All of these points to the fact that we are here to, to learn, to learn, to, to be ourselves, to be part of the world. And we, I think we need that very much in today's world. Mm. With this research, I'm leading us back into the extraterrestrial section that I had mentioned. Has there ever been, in your years of research, a child or an individual who remembers living a life on another planet? Well, there is some evidence of, 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 uh, of that, but since we don't know the other planet, we don't know what the conditions would be, we can only imagine it that it's similar to ours in some way. It's a bit if it's fundamentally new, as I said before, we cannot build it into our knowledge system. Mm -hmm. We don't recognize it. So it could well have been, uh, I, it's my, just my personal view that in our past lives, we were not limited to this planet that we have been born and could have been born and probably were born in, and lived in, in many different environments in this, uh, in this galaxy. Uh, but uh, the actual being able to describe those things, it runs into the difficulty that we would only be able to imply or reconstruct all that experience on the basis of what we experience on Earth. I think we are, to some extent, uh, we are all extraterrestrials. We are terrestrial extraterrestrials because we have, we have both. We have our, our past history. It's, it's a history of the cosmos. We are not that limited, so that would be just a curious phenomenon, exceptional phenomenon on Earth. Your life is something that is emerging in the universe, and if life emerges, consciousness emerges. And if our consciousness is really a projection of a cosmic hologram, then no matter where you lived, you, you were. 
joined by this cosmic Akashic hollow field. So we are all, all, all part of that, no matter where we live. The physical environment is really secondary. Mm-hmm. If we could tap into this holographic field, would it be possible for us to do something similar to time travel, as in going into the past? We can recover information from the past, yes. I think if the information is conserved, is, is, is there, you know, it would be a little bit like going into a computer and, and, and picking up a video that was recorded in the past. I mean, all videos were practically not, unless it's live streaming, they were all recorded. Uh, so that's, that way we will be witnessing the past. But uh, here you have to go to some extent, you have to trust your own intuition or your own beliefs. I don't think that the past is something that uh, uh, can be changed. I think the past has, has happened and uh, we can relive the past, but we can't make it alive as it were. Mm-hmm. And we can witness it again. But the past is what made the present. The whole universe is the outcome of a series of incredible series of past events that have all come together and created the universe in which we live. So Mm -hmm. we can go back, but we can't make it new again. The past is the past. What is your opinion? I don't know if you're familiar with the multiverse or Dr. Michio Kaku. Yes, yes, yes. What is your opinion about the multiverse? If it does exist, and if we think something, but we do not act on it, does that create another version of ourselves that does? Personally, I don't believe it. Personally, the whole multiverse theory was brought out to explain some quantum phenomena that are very difficult to explain. And uh, I think it's a somewhat of a forced artificial explanation. I do believe firmly firmly believe, on the basis of good evidence, that this universe is not the only universe there is. But if there's another universe than this, then we don't know it. We don't have information. Because if we had information from this other universe, then it wouldn't be another universe. And it would be part of this universe. I know this sounds a little bit like just sophistry playing around with words. But the fact is that there are other universes could have been born in space. Uh, you know how this universe was born in a kind of a cosmic explosion. And there is now there are very good theories, cosmological theories, serious physics theories, which say that these kind of burst events, universe-creating events, occur periodically in various points, probably at the centers of the galaxy. In our center of the galaxy could very well be a, a, a kind of a, a womb for the next universe to, to come forth. And so many universes are likely to happen. Therefore, there are multiverses. Yes, multiple universes. But they are different universes, and they are not universes that we can experience ourselves. Because if they were, as I said, they wouldn't be other universes. They would be part of this. So I think, uh, you know, uh, I believe in multiple universes, but I don't believe that our experience reaches into those other universes. Okay. Irvin, I want to thank you so much for appearing on The Far Side with us today. I would like to give you this opportunity now to discuss your website, any upcoming works, and essentially anything else you would like to with the audience. Well, you can say it. You can just use my name, ervinlaszlo.com. I'm also the founder of the Club of Budapest, which is a think tank trying to create a more peaceful, harmonious, uh, flourishing world. 
through an international network, and you can use that theclubofbudapest.com. You can see that. Uh, but more than anything else, uh, if you look up my books, which you can see them on Amazon or wherever else, and on many other places, ebooks and regular books, I have published almost 90 books under my name. And uh, those are the ones that I want to stand by. And my latest book, as I think you mentioned, is The, uh, uh, the Immortal Mind. The one before that is The Self-Actualizing Cosmos, which is subtitled The Akasha Paradigm in, conscious, in human consciousness, in, in, in science and in human consciousness. And these two books, plus the one that I haven't written yet, but I'm working on now, is called Beyond Space Time. These are the works that I want to stand by. When you do write Beyond Space Time, I would love to have you back on and we can discuss that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Keep in touch because I'm working on it day and night. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Irvin Laszlo. And Irvin's book is The Immortal Mind, Science and the Continuity of Consciousness Beyond the Brain. And if you are interested in purchasing Irvin's book, you can go to thefarside.com tv slash immortal mind before i end this program i do want to say a special hello to everybody at beyonddarkmatter.com they're like an extended family we love to laugh we love to joke around and we'll discuss all sorts of topics that's of an interest and it might be of an interest to you as well and we do have a topic of the day where every day someone creates a new topic of the day. And if you're interested in joining, like I said, we are a friendly bunch of people. And if you want to drop by, just drop by, sign up, register, and let us know that you heard about it from the far side. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, I wish you all a kind farewell.